Well, hello, folk. Uh, great to see you, and welcome again to our Generation Podcast. You've all heard about the glass ceiling and how women are constantly breaking the glass ceiling. Well, we have got someone who is breaking, it's not so much a glass ceiling, but as a tweed ceiling, because we've got Katrina Murray, our very first female participant, and certainly one of many on our Generation Podcast. Katrina, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here, in virtually in person. Absolutely. Um, just to fill our listeners in, Katrina uh, lectures for UHI. She's based in Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis. She lectures on a wide range of, kind of cultural issues. She also is the first regular columnist for the Free Church uh, Record. That's a denominational magazine. And she is also a blogger, and she blogs at Post Tenabris Lux. Uh, please look that up. It's a really interesting <clears throat> blog just talking about faith issues, cultural issues, and re- really what's on Katrina's mind. Uh, Katrina, you, your story to, to faith, your journey to faith um, is slightly unusual. Can you tell the folk how you became a Christian? Um, I wish I could. It's it's quite a difficult one for me even to to put into words. I can't. I don't have a conversion story. Um, and the more I go on in, in the Christian life, I realise I'm I'm not necessarily alone in not being able to pinpoint okay. when I was converted. I grew up in you know a very typically uh, Lewis household in the 1980s and 90s. Um, most people were church going, so I was kind of immersed in that. Um, and and so it was it was something that was ever present, but it kind of made you a little bit uh, almost numbed to it, I think, in a way, um, because you were so used to going to church and hearing the message. Um, yeah. It was it became a little bit every day. Um, but I think if I was pushed, I would say that it was probably in my early 20s when I was working as a development officer in the north of Lewis um, and I'd started attending church again. Um, and I, I was really very heavily affected by the, the preaching of the Reverend Kenneth Stewart, who was minister in, in Stornoway yep. Free Church then. Um, and I used to actually listen to sermons on the long journey to and from work. Uh, and looking back now, I didn't realise it at the time, but looking back now, I think um, that's probably when uh, a bit of a change came over me spiritually. But my my conversion story, if you like, isn't so much... My conversion, it's its sort of when I really received assurance of salvation. And that was through um, my late husband's illness and, and subsequent death. It was then that I realized that I was actually relying on the Lord without without realizing I was relying on him in the, in this, in the same way that an infant relies on a parent. I just, I turned to him in, in my need. Yeah. And, and it's then that I realized, well, he's always been there. Yeah. And um, it, 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 I've, I've had this relationship. It's almost good, in a sense. I mean, when you say you don't have a conversion story, you know, I, th- I think I think you do, but it wasn't a kind of classic Pauline Damascus Road meeting, you know, God in, in the middle of the night with a, a shining light, which is really unusual. And I think when folk hear these stories it can be very often off-putting because, you know, their story seems on the basis to be just more ordinary and more mundane and pedestrian. Um, is that your experience of, of of testimonies? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. And when I was first asked to 
I was actually first asked to write my testimony before I was ever asked to um, talk about it. And my first thought was, what on earth am I going to write? Because I can't see um, this this dramatic thing happened or, you know, I was le- leading this terrible life and then this huge change came into it and everything was transformed. Because, like you say, you tend to hear the sort of the headline stories, yeah. the, the, the really dramatic, exciting sort of Paul-type conversions. But... Like I said earlier, I realise now the more I go on that these are actually very much in the minority and loads and loads of people, especially people who were brought up in the kind of community I was brought up in, they'll say, well, that just wasn't my experience. It was more of a slow dawning, a gradual realisation. And and that's quite nice, too, to be able to say, well, yeah, I I belong to a group of people who have had similar experiences. Was your experience of church or perhaps to be more accurate, your perception of church Negative, positive, or neutral? Um, I would say that it was probably largely positive. Um, as a child, I think it was like everybody else. I just I thought, you know, this is something to be endured. But I always had a really fertile imagination. So I viewed the, in those days, hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half of yeah. church. As, uh, I would go in and I would think, well, what am I going to think about for the next hour or so to pass the time and I would you know make up stories in my head and daydream and it was quite bearable Uh, but as I got older when I was probably about 15 or so I started to have this kind of ping pong relationship with church where I would go of my own volition for a while enjoy it get a lot out of it and then just somehow slip away again Um, and this carried on really until I did become um uh, an out Christian, as I like yeah, to think of. Yeah. Once I stopped being a secret disciple, that's when my my church going settled down. But yes, no, I've always been quite defensive of um, the church in Lewis. I think particularly has had a lot of criticism from from within and from out with the island. Um, and I've always felt it was unfair, even when I didn't necessarily belong to that church. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like every, everything else. We've got to have a degree of honesty, but... You know, someone says, if we don't have a church as our mother, we cannot have God as our father. So, you know, it's easy to diss the church. But the church, you know, she's the bride of Christ. She's a blemished bride, but she's loved by Jesus. Therefore, she has to be loved by by us. Um, Completely. And I think there's a sorry. I think there's a danger that we we kind of confuse. Not that not so much. Well, maybe. Uh, churchgoers and Christians as well, but the community at large confuses the idea of church with denomination, and I think that's something we want to try and avoid. Sure. Now, moving on, just to touch on something, you you were just married a few years, you're really happily married, you're settling down, and all of a sudden you get the news, both of you, that your husband has cancer, and ultimately he passed um, that that was a time in your life when God was beginning to work in you. A lot of folk, when they experience death, and they would say, you know, this is really unfair, turn against God. But talk us through your experience. It clearly didn't turn you against God. No, um, quite the opposite. Um, I, I think my own my husband was actually a similar person to me in terms of his relationship with faith. I think that he was um, also a secret disciple. Um, and it would have been interesting in many ways if, if, if things had turned out differently mm-hmm. to see actually where his and my 
faith journey would have taken us. But because of his own attitude to the illness, which was never why me, it was always why not me. Well, why shouldn't yeah. it be me? Um, he, he was diagnosed the same year that we marked our 10th wedding anniversary. Okay. What age was um, he then? Or he was 50. Okay. He was 50 and I was 38. Mm -hmm. um, there was 12 years between us. And, you know, it was quite a blow. We, we kind of knew for a little while that there was something not quite right, but it was still, it comes as a blow when you hear that awful word cancer. Um, but initially the prognosis was really very hopeful. And um, he was, he had an operation and he had mop-up treatment, which was very much sold to us as, you know, he might as well have it because he's, He's relatively young and he's, he's mm -hmm. fit and healthy, so his body can take it. Um, and he was told that he had a an 85% chance of no recurrence. Um, but he, he there was a recurrence and spread within a year. And when that happened, we were told you know, that he probably only had a couple of years, maybe a little longer if chemotherapy was effective. But um, it actually transpired. He was diagnosed and re-diagnosed, I suppose, in November 2014, and he passed away in March of 2015. So we really only had about four months. Right. Um, but he was he was quite, quite ill. But his attitude through the illness was, you know, and I referred to that st statistic, the 85% chance of no recurrence. Um, he kept a diary throughout, um, which was very unlike him. He wasn't a great writer in any sense of the word, but he kept a diary to try and keep his mind focused and off the pain and one of the things in the, the diary was very much talking to me a lot of the time um, and in it he said uh, you have to be a very special person to be one of the 15 percent <laughs> um, and uh, you know his attitude was why shouldn't it be me it's it's got to be somebody why shouldn't it be me and I think that was indicative of a, a deeper reliance that he that he definitely had on the Lord. I know because of um, other things that he wrote yeah. and things that he said. So that helped me. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, there was just that feeling. It, it wasn't even a question in my mind. It wasn't a conscious decision. I just knew that God, God was going to be there. His arms were under me to catch me. And it, it never entered my head to feel bitterness because providence is providence and um, lots of people experience hard providence harder than I have um, and the question I think is always how can you experience more of God's love through this and I, I can stand testament to the fact that I, I did and I do. What would you say to someone who has, ex you know, experienced serial bad providences um, or what they perceive has been bad, just blow after blow after blow? Uh, and they, you know, could you blame someone like that for being bitter against God? No, I mean, it's, it's this has been the one terrible thing that's happened to me in an otherwise very easy and very blessed life. Um, and I would find it difficult to to say otherwise to somebody who had suffered, as you say. I've, I know people who have been through all kinds of unimaginable tragedies. Um, very shortly after my husband's death, a boy that had been in school with me, died in very tragic circumstances overseas and it was quite hard to know what to say to his mother um, by, by way of comfort because, you know, I know losing a husband, losing mm -hmm. a spouse at what some people would deem an unnaturally 
early stage in life is one thing, and it is hard. I'm not going to minimise that. But to lose your child must be unthinkable. Um, And no, I don't think you could blame anybody for that. But I think what I would say to them is just go go on trusting through the pain. Um, Feel the pain and experience the pain. Don't try and... Don't try and pretend it's not happening. Don't try and um, spiritualize something that you're feeling as real human pain, but equally go on trusting God through it because he's he's gone ahead of you into this and he knows um, what he's doing. And ultimately, you have to trust him. That is, that is so helpful. Can, can I unpack a little thing here that's always in my mind? Folk very often talk about healing. And I don't know if you experienced this. There are some Christians who think that, you know, he's going to be healed. Healing is the thing. Now, you know, every branch of Christianity that I know from really conservative Presbyterians to sort of, you know, charismatics believe in the power of God to heal. Did you ever experience that? Maybe well-meaning folk claiming, yeah, he's, he's going to be healed. Or did you pray for it? And did you feel let down when it didn't happen? Um, I did pray for it initially, um, but when it reached the point where um, you know doctors were saying he's we're moving him to a hospice and he's probably only got uh, the words they used were days, but not days and days. Um, I accepted that and I, I I stopped praying for healing and I started praying for peace uh, for him and for me. Um, and and for God to be glorified through it, because my mother had actually, I think, by way of comforting herself and me, she kept saying throughout his illness that she was getting the text, you know, this this illness, this sickness is not unto death. Yeah. Um. And I think I think I've blogged about this. Uh, what I forgot and what she forgot, of course, is that there's more to the text. Um. And it says, but to, to the for the glory of God, to the glory of God, and I think. You have to be a little bit more far-sighted than always to focus on what we term healing, which, of course, to us is always hanging on to our loved ones as long as possible, having them with us here, being here ourselves if, if the illness is our own, um, being in this world. But sometimes there's better healing. Yeah. Um, hard on all as it is for me to and, and for his family and everybody who loved him to accept Donny has experienced better healing by going on ahead of us. Um, and he, I'm quite sure if, if he had the opportunity to come back, he wouldn't. Um, and in fact, strangely, after my father died, my father died in 2011. Um, and after he died, I had a really vivid dream of him as he was when I was probably about nine or 10. And he came into the, the house, my, my parents' home, and I was there with my mother. And he came in and he shouted, I'm home, as if he had just come home from work. Um, I'm home. And yet in the dream, even though everything looked the way it used to, I must I must have known that he had died because I asked him, I said, would you come back? And he said, no. So <laughs> that's the sort of thing I found enormously comforting when I sort of looked back on it and I thought, well, yeah, that's healing. That's real healing mm-hmm. because Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he still had to die, ultimately. Um, he had to die a, a second time. So whatever we think of as healing, there's really only one healing that, that matters, only one healing that counts. Yeah, I, th- I think what you've said in the last few minutes about suffering and healing has been so helpful, and many folk will find that helpful. I mean, uh, uh, <coughs> our conversations are kind of random. I want to just move on to 
um, other things. Now, <clears throat> this is a Generation podcast. We we belong to the Free Church of Scotland, in, and we're known as a, a denomination for what's called complementarianism. Uh, in other words, certain offices of the church, the ministry, teaching ministry, uh, ruling elders, deacons are only open to men. Uh, however, we're complementarians. We think that there are other roles which complement um you know, men and women have different roles in in the church. So, so Katrina, here's the question: Are you a frustrated elder? Um, are you happy with that complementarian position, or do you see it as a kind of uh, ancient ritual that should be dismissed? So, are, are you a closet feminist? This is your time to come out. <laughs> I am not a closet feminist <laughs> in the sense that I think. Um, I think what I am is a, I am a complementarian, and I didn't. I didn't even know I was until I can't even remember what blog it was I wrote, mm-hmm. and somebody accused me of complementarianism, and I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. And I looked it up, and I thought, yeah, that is what I'll I am. That, yeah. That's ex- <laughs> that's exactly what I am. I think God has created um, men and women in in a particular way and for fitted for particular roles. Um, and I think I think that we actually mirror Him best when we. We fulfil to the best of our abilities and in his grace uh, when we fulfil those roles um, together, working together rather than everybody trying to be everything. Mm-hmm. I think be be what you're meant to be. Um, and I don't mean that in a restrictive sense. I don't mean, you know, women shouldn't do this and women shouldn't do that. That's I don't think that's the right way to approach it. I think we should look at what women can do. And in a sense, it's not even what women can do or what men can do. It's what individuals are capable of, yeah, what they're gifts. So you've not felt thwarted at all in terms of using your gifts uh, for the ministry of the church in, in your own specific way? You, you've, not, you've not felt held back or uh, suppressed? No, I, I think what i probably done... Um, maybe slightly unusually I've, I've never really asked for permission um to and having something like a blog gives you that sort of autonomy in a sense that you feel well you can you can say what's on your mind um you would hope anyway that as a christian first and foremost whatever else you are that you're thinking all the time and it's my co- constant prayer it's the one thing that's in my prayers every day don't let me be the route by which the cause is brought into disrepute. Don't let me bring dishonour on on God's cause. And I think if you hold that before you um, and whatever you do, then that keeps you in your in your proper in your proper place, if yeah. you like. I was really hoping not to use that phrase, but um I mean that for, for men and for women. I think as Christians, that's the first priority. Um and so because I I didn't ask for anyone's permission and I just started blogging, other things developed from there. Um and other people started re- referring to the blog as a ministry. And yes. the first couple of times I thought mm, I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Um but I kind of do now. I do now. Um I think it's I think that's what we do. We sort of self limit a little bit as women maybe too. Um you think, oh I, c- I can't call it a ministry. That's that's what but it is because um, all Christians have a have a ministry. And uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and I think the thing we have to remember about complementarianism is that it's not just about what women cannot do, but we've neglected the other side of it for too long. It's what women can do, 
and indeed not just what women can do, but what men can do. So it really is good to develop a legitimate and fruitful women's ministry. Now, if I was just to turn to blogging and, and writing, you seem to be a really gifted writer. People enjoy reading what you write. Folk enjoy your column in the record. Folk enjoy your blog. Tell us how it started well, I hate to admit it, but it was a man mm. <laughs> that uh, got me started on blogging. It was a, a guy who will be known to uh, listeners, I'm quite sure, Andy Murray, yeah. um, who's behind the, the Ragged Theology blog. Mm -hmm. um, and Andy is the son-in-law of um, my minister, uh, James McKeever. And I met Andy just after I had published my testimony in the church newsletter. It was at a communion time. And... Uh, Andy asked if he could re-reblog it, and he said you should think about maybe writing me a couple of articles for mm -hmm. my blog because we we share an interest in um, free church history, and in, indeed you know I have a broader interest in the social history of the Highlands and Islands, um, and I I thought oh yeah well maybe I will that would be quite good, and then as an almost last sort of thought he said or or even think about starting a blog yourself, and I thought hmm. Maybe I will. Now, although I'm giving him the credit, I had actually already thought about it and I had a domain name, but I hadn't done anything about it. Uh, so a few weeks after that communion, um, one Friday evening, I wrote a blog about the free church and the fairies and um, put it online, heart hammering a little bit, I have to say. I was thinking, I have no idea how this is going to be received. Um, and the reception was actually really great, really um Quite touching, actually, yeah, some yeah. of the things that people had to say. And it made me realise that maybe there was an interest and a need for that kind of writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, how do you write? You know, I think uh, someone once said, was it uh, Ernest Hemingway, that he wrote drunk and edited sober. Um, I'm not suggesting you do that, but the idea is that you just... You write whatever's in your mind and then you edit. What's your process? My process is get it down as quickly as possible um, and yeah, edit it there and then if I possibly yeah. can. Um, are, you, are you in the zone or can you do it any time or do you have to be in the zone? No, I can I can put myself in the zone usually. Um, with, with the blog, it's a bit more sort of... I, I think it's back to that question that, that you asked earlier on, you know, about the about the tweed ceiling and about um, being hampered. I think with a blog, I have a bit more freedom than I do with a column. And that's not because the free church has imposed yes. or the, the record has imposed anything on me. But I'm just more mindful that I'm writing for the official magazine yes. of the free church and it has its own editorial policy. It's never, ever been an issue. Um, nothing's ever been changed or questioned. Um, and as far as I know, they don't receive sackloads of letters of complaint. But I'm slightly more sort of circumspect when I'm when I'm writing that, I think. So I feel I've probably got more freedom when I'm writing the blog. I'm also constrained as to length with the column. Um, it's 760 words. So if you're, if you're really on a roll, that sometimes needs quite a bit of heavy editing. Um, mm. And I have, I did once write a, a column um, at half past midnight after getting in from a 
Stornoway Trust Christmas due and realising my deadline was the next morning. So um, that will never happen again because, uh, dare I say it, the new editor is a bit more rigorous about notifying us of deadlines well in advance. Yes, well, the the ex-editor is a bit of a legend and I'm sure he'll be, he'll be listening to this podcast from his uh, hacienda there in uh, Sydney. Um, just talking a little bit about the free church, I mean, you spoke there about social history and, you know, anybody that is interested in the Highlands and Islands and indeed in Scotland can see, you know, the origins of the free church as being really seminal in, in the social and political development of the Highlands. You know, you cannot think, for example, of the Land League without thinking of a free church, even characters like Marivorn and Oran, um, you know, the the Sky Poetess, you know, I love her stuff, is so full of religious imagery, evangelical imagery. Um, do you think we are in danger of forgetting that sort of political, radical origins of our denomination? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word radical. <laughs> I think when I, um, whenever I cover this with my um, second year degree students, which is the point where they start looking at social history, they're Gaelic degree students, they're always really surprised when I use the word radical to describe the free church. Yeah. Because unfortunately, in, in living memory, the free church, I suppose, again, particularly in places like Lewis, it's come to sort of be seen as being the very opposite, being very, very conservative, being quite establishment, being the province of um, stuffy old men. Um, But when you tell them about the origins, the roots of the free church, and as you say, the radicalism um, (laughs) from which it was born, the the sheer act of faith that was the disruption, um, I think they see it in a different light. And yes, I think think we should be more mindful of our history. And I'd quite like to see the free church doing more um, to, to keep that sort of aspect of its origins alive. I know... Of course, historically, the church has been shy to do things like that because you don't want to be accused of self-glorification or of of making the the institution more important than the message or anything like that. But I think it it is important for us to remember um, that that in in purely spiritual terms, I think the disruption was an act of faith. It was um, people walking out into the unknown, leaving behind the comfort and security they had known and trusting that that God was going to be with this new denomination and that he was going to provide for them. So I think in that sense, there would be absolutely nothing wrong in the the free church doing more to keep its its legacy uh, alive. And and also, I think it has kept its legacy alive in in practical ways, um, maybe particularly in terms of mission uh, and a lot of the things that's involved in today. Yeah, I think, you know, folk would be surprised about the radical edge in in the, the 19th century. You know, during the potato famine, for example, there was a, a yacht, it was called the Bredalban, and it was um, hired, chartered by the Free Church to distribute food aid throughout the Highlands and Islands. And, you know, people often wonder, you know, why was the Free Church so strong in the Highlands and Islands and it was because it was a popular movement. It was very much pro-crofting. It was very much pro the people and against the establishment. So, you know, I'm glad that you're getting the message out there. Yeah, I think actually the Bread Albans are a really good example of, you know, it was initially intended to, to be moving ministers from place to place mm. that the word could be 
spread. And then, of course, famine ensued and priority was given to the, the very practical um, task of, of feeding people. And, of course, ministers of the Free Church were well-placed to know who was in need because they were so acquainted with their congregations in a way that the established church perhaps hadn't necessarily been so well-placed to do. So I think it says something about... Um, the, the practical nature of its ministry at that time as well. And that's something the church has been accused of moving away from over the years, of being, you know, very much preaching, but not providing. Um, and I, I think it's an, it's an unfair criticism, and I think it, it is good to remember these roots. Yeah, I mean, the Free Church, of course, is a coalition, perhaps, between left, right and centre, if I can use these um, broad terms, you know, I, I, Folk probably see me more on on the left wing of the church, and I'm okay with that. But I think I get more and more inspiration from the past, from history, from you know what we were, and very often a radical outlook outlook in life does come from an examination of our early history, which is quite a a, a revelation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to. Other interesting things. Um, fairies. Let's talk about fairies. Um, you've written about fairies. You know, folk don't often talk about them. And yet, it's so, <laughs> bizarrely, so much part of, you know, free church heritage. I'm thinking of Hugh Miller and his book on, you know, uh, schools and schoolmasters. Uh, I'm thinking about just that whole supernatural tradition um katrina what do you think about supernaturalism have we lost touch with that element of of life that reality perhaps of life um i think i think supernaturalism in the in the sense that i i teach folklore and i spend quite a lot of my time going about talking to unsuspecting local history societies about it. In fact, I'm, this, this Halloween, um, I'm engaged in just such a venture. And people are really fascinated by what our forefathers believed and how much they lived their lives by this belief that there was another world just beyond, um, just beyond this one and sometimes really kind of a parallel to this one, but peopled by fairies and witches and ghosts and all kinds of spirits, um, I think it, it performed a function for them to, to a greater or lesser extent. I think fairy belief in things like, for example, the, the fairy changeling, the idea mm -hmm. that your child had been taken and replaced by one of the fairies. Um, there's a whole body of research now that suggests that relates to um, infant conditions like or rather conditions that manifest in infancy like um, Down syndrome, uh, autism, even sort of purely physical things like spina bifida, um, which in the past wouldn't have been detected at or prior to birth the way they are now. <clears throat> and so the only way to explain it was my my apparently healthy child has, has been taken away and replaced by this um, otherworldly being who isn't thriving yeah. And the only way to explain it is it's it's a creature from another world. So I think they performed a social function and mm -hmm. likewise belief in things like witchcraft and in in haunting. But I think it's probably true to say that, you know, you were asking about whether we've lost touch with that. I think it's probably indicative of that general movement away from sort of proper contact with nature as well. 
Um, we, we've put so much between us and uh, the the natural and the supernatural world, so that it's. I think even even as Christians, you can experience sometimes just the difficulty we have in disconnecting from this very loud, very fast world that we live in, and connecting with um, with God and with the just the, the, His peace and just doing things at a pace that is more natural to us as human beings. So I think it's it's part of this general movement away from, from such things. And also we we think we know more. We think we're mm. so smart. We think we're so logical and scientific. So we scoff at the stuff that people used to believe. Right. So you think we've almost become too rationalistic these days? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm, I would not obviously suggest that we return to... Uh, a world where we're totally credulous and believe in in the fairies rather than in um, medical evidence, for example. But I think sometimes we're too quick to explain things away. And I think, you know, that's something that manifests itself in, in secularism as well, because some Christians don't like, um, you know, us applying the term supernatural to, to God and the things of God, but they are supernatural in the sense that they are beyond nature, they are outside what we can immediately see and experience and understand. Um, and I think that general um, sort of allergy to the supernatural is unhelpful in terms of trying to speak to people about God who have had no no real experience. Um, you know, they haven't been brought up, for example, the way, the way I was. And so if you speak to them as rational adults about something so intensely supernatural, mm-hmm. you're at a disadvantage right away, I think, because they're so sort of their minds rebel against such a thing. They think it, it's kind of been infantilized, I think, a little bit. And it's very hard to speak to people about it in a sensible way. Yeah, that's so interesting. You mentioned earlier about dreams. Um, again, you know, that's very much part of our tradition. Uh, just inexplicable dreams and sometimes insights. You know, we in, in the free church are certainly not, you know, card-carrying charismatics or anywhere near that. But again, you know, it's been your experience, and have you heard of experience of, of many others who have, you know, had unusual perceptive dreams? Um, yeah, I think people are reluctant to talk about it, but yes, yeah, I, I do know of people who have had the kind of dream I, I mentioned there about after my father's death. I think that's quite common, um, and it's, you know, possibly people could argue it's your subconscious mind comforting you. Um, it is whatever you whatever you perceive it to be, I suppose. Um, but I, I think I think there's probably more of it goes on than people are willing to talk about. Um, but people will, if you if you show that you're not scoffing at that kind of thing, and if you're willing to share your own experiences of it and your own perceptions of it, it's amazing how folk will open up and they will talk about such things. I mean, another thing that you see a lot amongst Christians is just what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, when my mother was saying about uh, the sickness is not unto death, you will have people saying, I got this and, and I think it's for you. It happened to me very, very recently. I was going through a bit of a, a rough time um, through just my my public profile here in, in Lewis. And um, I was a lot of people were saying to me, look, you're not going to get any peace until you just 
stop your involvement in this, that and the other and stop speaking out about controversial things. And I was beginning to think, well, you know what, maybe they're right. And then this lady who I don't know very well at all, she's a, a Christian who I've met a couple of times, um, messaged me and she said, you've been on my mind repeatedly over the last couple of weeks. And um, I was, she said, I was sitting at a, even at a, a funeral service and she said, you came to my mind again. And she says, I've got this passage for you. And it wasn't actually from the Bible. It was from Spurgeon. Um, and she said, I think it's for you. And she sent it to me. And it was absolutely exactly for me. You know, she was saying, maybe it isn't for you and maybe I need to okay. play more over this, but I think it is. And, but it was absolutely fitted my situation. I felt, I had felt for a little while like God wasn't saying yea or nay to me. And through this, I thought, all right, yes, he is. He's speaking directly to me through this. And I now know what I have to do. And I've been wrong. I've been wrong in listening to other people. It was just yet another version of being wise in your own sight, listening to other people who were well-meaning in their advice, but they weren't advising me prayerfully, I realise now. So things like that um, outside of a church context, because I told a friend who's not a Christian, and um, while she's by no means a scoffer, um, she said, oh, she says, I just can't enter into that. I can't get my head around that. And I realised then it is quite unusual outside of a church context to have those kinds of interactions. Yeah. <clears throat> Talking, I mean, the two things that folks say you should never talk about are politics and religion. And yet, you know, politics is man's relationship to each other. Religion is man's relationship to God. The two most important issues You've always or been a, a political animal. I know that you're interested in politics, and recently you have a fairly, in, uh, you know, significant role in in the Stornoway area. Uh, for which, you know, as soon as you put your head above a parapet, you attract criticism. Um, can you just tell us how how do you cope with criticism? Are you able to deal with it better? Are you able to get a bit of perspective these days? Um, there's two kinds of criticism. Uh, there's the kind of criticism that comes from um, secular slash atheist uh, forces in our community. And uh, frankly, I expect it. And I suppose if I'm honest on some level, I relish it. Hmm. Uh, I quite like a, a good, robust debate uh, where I feel that I, of course, hopefully have, have right on my side. And I hope I do it graciously. Um the kind of the kind of criticism I find hard to take is when it comes from fellow Christians. That's the one that always hurts. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it doesn't actually come in the form of overt criticism. It can come in the form of cold disapproval or um, just a sense of being unsupported. Um, and that, that latter one, I have to say, is one I've, I've had a bit of experience of. I find that difficult. But um, in general terms... The criticism of the world, well, it's it's what the Bible is full of telling us to expect. If you if you stand with Christ, then you're going to have to expect that that's the way way to go. I was reading Matthew chapter ten last night, and um, directly to his followers there and saying, you know, expect this because they're going to hate you for my sake. But that's the thing you always have to remember, and that's the thing I find enormously helpful is they don't really hate me. They mm -hmm. hate Christ in me. And if I if I was to say to them tomorrow, no, I, I agree with you. I, I'm going to go with everything you're saying. Let's 
let's turn Lewis into a seven-day economy. Let's let's give up all the values that, that we've held dear for so long. Let's stop having the Lord's Prayer in school. All of the things that have yeah. become kind yeah. of targets in Lewis. I know I could become very popular overnight if I did that. It's it's not about me. It's Christ in me. And in yeah. that respect, if you remember that, and I, I do try to remember this, and I'm, I'm getting better at it, it's him they're attacking. And mm. that makes me not feel sorry for myself. That makes me feel all kinds of things that I feel about him. When I remember what I owe him and how he's, he didn't stint at standing up for me in every possible way and beyond anything we could imagine. Um, so it's very little for me to, to yeah. suffer a few, <clears throat> few names being called. Do, do you think people really want to turn Lewis into something like, you know, Milton Keynes, um, just ordinary? You know, do folk not realise that that's what makes these places special? I suspect that what's happened is that where where people are really vocal is on social media, and I think they're a minority, but they're a very vocal minority. And you can you can be tricked into thinking that um, they're repre- they're more representative than they are. I think yeah. actually the vast majority of people here still value what makes us different, um, and even if they're not Christians, even if they're not e- churchgoers, e- um, I think even they, secular people they appreciate the values. That's why they live there, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we have a we have a local we have a Facebook group which was set up kind of to prove this point a little, um, which is called We Love Lewis and Harris Sundays. And I would say probably seventy percent of the membership of that group are people who who lead a fairly secular life, who don't have any great relationship with the church or any live, I should say, relationship with the church, but who who appreciate nonetheless the legacy of Lewis having been such a, a Christian society over the decades and over the centuries. Do you not just get fed up of the old memes that are trotted out, the tartan Taliban and, you know, um, swings being chained on a Sunday? I mean, what, what, what can we do to fight against this fake news? Well, I think unless we set up our own our own meme generator, <laughs> um, I don't I don't really know I don't know what we can. They're pretty uh, tired. They're very tired memes, and you think, well, if that's all you've got, um, I think even even some of their own people are probably getting a bit tired of that image of the chained up swings because it's it's at least forty years out of date. I don't remember the swings being chained up as a child. Not that I would ever have used them anyway, <laughs> even if they weren't. <laughs> Katrina, thank you so much um, for giving us time today. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I just want the listeners to have a look at Post-Tenabrous Lux, um, get the record, listen to what Katrina's got to say. Katrina, I just want to encourage you. You're doing a great work. Keep on going. Keep on, you know, just being you, the you that God has made, the you that God has saved. Um, you've been a blessing to so many people. So please keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that encouragement. It's always welcome. Okay. Well, folks, that's it for another day, and we hope to see you again soon. Bye.